So I haven't really done anything to hedge against inflation because if I'm able to buy something for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50% less than it's worth, I'm not tripping about 5% or 10% because I picked up 50%. It really goes back to the value investing. And if you get a great deal at the beginning, I'm not smart enough to figure all that crap out. But if I can get a smoking good deal at the beginning, my dumb ass ain't going to lose no money. That's the best way I can say it. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing into commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Hey, everyone. I am super excited about this interview with uh, Logan Fulmer. He has dove into some of the like next level real estate investing that I don't know. Maybe there's a handful of people that exist in the entire country that have his skill sets and his knowledge diving into title work, dirty titles, abstract titles, And the way that you can buy property sometimes at 20 cents on the dollar in today's ultra competitive, high valued real estate world and still get these significant discounts. Uh, Wait until you dive in and hear him, especially on some of the things like his Conroy property where he unlocked the value of that and it took you know, the researching of hundreds of years of, of deed, deed title work. It didn't take him hundreds of years, but it was super, super fascinating. He's very transparent with his, his time diving into parenting, how some of these life lessons of real estate investing has now translated into being a good father and what he's done to even stop some of the fights uh, between his kids about fighting over the TV and, and the remote and how that all started from an element of some early fear of finally making some money and has now transitioned into these levels of success that I think is enviable to uh, the masses and including myself. The deals that he's doing are super fascinating, including historic mansion remodels. Can't wait for you to hear more about Logan Fulmer in this episode. Hey, everybody. I wanted to introduce you to my friend, Logan Fulmer. So 
Logan, you know, obviously, you know, we're getting a chance to to connect up here and it's been several years that we've known each other. And I think we we bonded over, you know, a similar mindset and maybe a little bit of uh, doing similar things is in doing similar things, I say, are a, a particular way of investing. And I've been a fan of yours for, for years. As I started digging in, I was just like, wow, what's this guy doing? Like he's doing, you're doing next level stuff. So I'd like to, and, and maybe I'll just kind of do a little bit of a, a bio for you, you know, to kind of give the, the, some people the foundation of that. But then I'd like to kind of dive in a, a little bit deeper and let's talk financial nerdy uh, into some of the things that you do. I mean, you're a roughneck you know, or working out in the oil fields, you know, uh, you know, in Texas and, and West Texas, South Texas, you know, you started getting into real estate, you started buying property and, you know, now all of a sudden you lit or you have one of the coolest properties, this mansion, the Gibbs, you know, mansion in government Hill, which is amazing. The remodel you've done with that. Now you've kind of uh, evolve that into commercial deals and buying ranches and just doing some really rad stuff. How did you get to that point coming from the oil field, central Texas to South Texas, West Texas, to then go, I'm going to start investing into foreclosed properties or dirty deeds and, you know, maybe take us on a little bit of a journey, Logan's uh, history uh, of investing. Well, man, I got to start out by saying thanks for the kind words. I've, I've heard about your deals in San Antonio through newspapers and through, you know, published stuff like that before I met you. So I kind of have the same admiration for the stuff you were doing. When we got to meet, I'm like, oh, cool. We, we have commonalities and like each other and all that stuff. So it made, you know, that was a neat connection. So but it makes me feel good to hear that, you know, it's reciprocated. And I know it now, but it was, you know, on the front end, it was kind of cool. So I appreciate all that. You know, I will, I say this at the risk of sounding like everybody else's, you know, I always had an interest in real estate, <laughs> but my mom um, was in sales and ended up becoming a realtor midway through her career. And my dad was a CPA. So I had a little background with, uh, you know, the accounting stuff, the money stuff that was a focus that was talked about a lot. And then of course, real estate. So, you know, when you combine those two, you you always think about it in a different, in a unique way. A lot of folks think about real estate, but they forget about the spreadsheets that go behind it that really support those big, beautiful looking projects that we all admire. So it's always kind of been there in the background. Um, and I always thought about how to do it, but I didn't really understand the finances as well as I thought I did until I really started doing it. But, you know, I worked for a commercial broker for a little while in Houston before I went to the oil field and got to see him doing investments and retail stuff. And then when I went out to the oil field, I had a lot of time. I was working 12 to 14 hours a day or I was by myself sleeping, going for a jog or just whatever. So I spent a lot of time thinking and Googling, I guess you could say. But what I did find is San Antonio was a, a midpoint between Laredo and Midland. And those are two of the places I spent a lot of time working as the big city that was anywhere near those. So I, I spent some time, you know, every couple of weekends when I had free time coming to San Antonio and I recognize that San Antonio is the seventh largest city in the United States, but I felt like it was maybe the maybe 20th 
you know, in terms of valuation and attention. And I would consider it a tertiary market at that time. So I, I kind of started to just take a little more focus. And then, of course, things kind of grew from there, I guess you could say. But, you know, I'd go work for, you know, a month, save a little money and go buy a crummy vacant lot on the east side and work for a few more months, save a few more dollars and go buy, you know, a little crummy vacant house on the east side. And a friend of mine pointed me in that direction, the east side, of, you know, early on. And the more I saw it, the more I realized, gosh, we have high value on one side of the highway and extreme low value on the other side of the highway. If that value ever crosses the highway, you know, you start to get some balance. So I pretty much invested everything I had for three or four years into downtown and east side areas in San Antonio. And that's kind of, that's how it all really took shape. You know, I flipped a few houses right before I went to the oil field, made a couple dollars, but at that time, I didn't know enough or have enough resources to really, really make a living at it. I feel like that's a little bit of a lot of people's journey is starting out in, in the real estate, doing some smaller residential type deals and that kind of snowballing, having a little bit of success, maybe taking some lumps, you know, Hey, I did this right. I did that wrong. You know, let's, uh, you know, evolve that and, and kind of scale it up. I find that interesting, you know, how you've identified something as far as the market seeing, you know, the, the freeway, you know, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time and investment in San Antonio, so I know exactly what you're talking about. But, you know, to to other people, like, what is that? Or if you can maybe talk about to some things that you saw or gave you some clues for investing, why, why East San Antonio? What what was it about that got you comfortable enough to start investing in an area that was unproven or, you know, pioneering, so to speak? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say right now that I'm not a real estate speculator. But that's the one time I speculated in my life. I wasn't really buying things for less than they were. There was no deep value investment. At that point, I was literally paying what things were worth. And at that time, the market, just the general economy in the United States and the world for that matter, was really depressed. And you're talking 2012, 13, 14. It was depressed relative to where it had been. So I felt like at that point, I was buying for fair market what it was worth. But I did feel like we were at a low point. And that's what all the folks that have made careers and in investing over time say, if you buy when the market's low, father time will do a lot of work for you. So I have to say that I did understand that. I did understand that I was, my neighborhood that I was really focusing on at the time was just literally a few hundred yards from high value. So I just thought, got to get some bleed over it happened. And I'd seen East Houston and Austin and the Heights areas. And some of those, you know, relatively tight infill areas evolve as I just spent time in those cities. So I was familiar with that, but I will say that there was some, some guessing because if I would have chose to make this bet on the West side of San Antonio, it wouldn't have paid off because the West side isn't worth any more today than it was 10 years ago. So there was some speculating, some guessing and a little bit of education in there, but I'll tell you, if I were to have to say that I have to replicate that play again, this proves how smart I really was or wasn't. I don't know that I could replicate that again. <laughs> and hindsight's 2020. So, you know, there was some gut there. There was some risk. And also I had to look at the risk. You know, when you're buying a, an entire infill vacant lot in the seventh largest city 
in the United States for five to ten thousand dollars, you know, relative dollars, that's not a lot. So I thought, what's the worst that's gonna happen? It doesn't go up in value and someone will buy it for me from what I paid. I didn't lose anything. My downside risk is virtually nothing except my carrying costs of the land for the taxes. Outside of that, if it exploded like East Austin or Houston or Dallas, my upside is many multiple, but my downside is literally zero. So that's why I was willing to bet because I had almost no downside. Yeah, that's uh, a, a very... A sophisticated and healthy way of looking at investing that I think, you know, uh, a lot of people use emotions or so much, you know, uh, emotion is tied to their investment, you know, and, and maybe, you know, uh, you could kind of talk a little bit to that, your mindset of transitioning. And maybe that was your dad being a CPA and kind of talking about numbers or, you know, your, your family conversations, but what was it that uh, allowed you to get to that place to think of it as a that kind of de-risking you know position you know like what's what's my what am i going to lose if if this goes you know kind of thing like was there something that happened in your life or something in your conversations family uh you know even if there wasn't i mean as far as just like i said maybe it was maybe it's dumb luck but it was there something that uh allowed you that space to do that investment? You know, if I have to think about it from a quick off the cuff answer, that's probably the most accurate. It was really fear. You know, I, I, my, my parents were professionals, you know, and I would say that, you know, we were middle-class, but we weren't wealthy by any means. And I'd never had this kind of money. So I get a job in the oil field and I was making three times what I'd ever made in the past in one year. And at that point I thought, this might be the best I ever do. So I have to do the best to protect this money because this to me could be lifetime money. And it was brand new to me also. So I didn't go buy expensive, cool shit like everybody else was doing. I was like, let me see if I can grow this. So it's interesting. I wanted to protect it because I was scared of the loss because I've never had this before. And this is my first shot to have money in my bank account, but also had to invest it in a way where there was risk, but my downside was less. So while my dad was a CPA, I learned a lot about finance. I didn't really understand about invest. I didn't understand investing like that yet. I was just fucking terrified. I was going to lose all this money that I've been working 12 to 14 hours a day for. And I thought, how do I take a risk, but not lose if it goes bad? And that was like primal instincts. Like, don't F this up, Logan. <laughs> and the more I got to read, as I decided I was going to be an investor professionally for my lifetime, my career, the more I got to read, the more I realized that this is like a deep value investors and, you know, professionals look at it like this, but now I understand why they look at it like this, the primal instinct or it should, it can be. So how, uh, you know, and maybe this take back a little bit to, to the beginning when, you know, you introduce yourself, I mean, cause you're, you're uh, multifaceted, you know, we also, you know, talk on uh, some private equity investing and you've invested in some other deals outside of real estate. So like, what, how do you introduce yourself? What do you tell people what you are or who you are? You know, I've struggled with that. You know, folks always say, Oh, you're a flipper. And, you know, sometimes I just laugh and say, yeah, even though it couldn't be farther from the truth, it's gotten harder to explain that. And I just say, I'm doing a real estate guy. You know, at that point, I don't know, because it's, Unless you're someone who's known and has made a name for themselves, 
as a business person, if, I, if someone asks you who you are, say, I'm a businessman, they're like, you're not an idiot. <laughs> I'm not Jay-Z where I can say I'm a businessman. That doesn't work. <laughs> so I just say I'm a real estate guy. And if it matters, we get into a conversation that evolves. And if it doesn't, well, at least they know I do real estate. That's interesting. I, that's a good question. What do you tell people you do? Yeah, it's the same thing because it's my wife, you know, um, my wife's a, a nurse. And so, uh, you know, she's a NICU nurse and she goes into work and people, you know, think I'm a real estate agent or as far as so she's like, oh, he does real estate. And she's like, when the people are like, well, what does that mean? And she's like, I, I don't actually know what he does because it's this. And, and they're like, so he's doing really well because, you know, real estate agents are doing well right now. And I'm like, eh, some things like as a distressed investor, when there's no distress, you know, it's actually really hard to find a deal. Like, and you know, the flipping, man, I have a hard time making any of these deals pencil today. I mean, you, you have to really start digging, you know, deeper. So uh, I'd like to take that specifically. I mean, you have a you know, unique thing that you do or at least I believe it's unique and special is call it, you know, dirty title, dirty deeds, you know, these, you know, clouded title um, properties that you've done or I've seen, and I've been kind of a, a fan of it. You posted recently, I don't remember if it was Facebook or Instagram, somewhere out in the social media. I don't know if you have Twitter, but you posted like this question of like this family airship of so-and-so has this and they own this. And then they put some property taxes. If you can maybe like, if you remember that, paraphrase it, and then how that translates to what you're doing with these types of super unique uh, investment vehicles. Well, in the past, I've made several riddle type posts like that. So I don't remember specifically that's what it is. Um, but I can probably speak to how those kind of deals took shape and why they are worth dealing with. Um, a lot of folks, they don't, they're not specialists in anything specifically, but they have access to capital and they're interested in construction and they like real estate. So they go on this endeavor of buying a fourplex or flipping a single family house or just building a spec build, something like that. And, you know, most of the time you got 20 to 30% margins in there. If you're lucky, that's kind of what it shakes out to be. And this goes back to fear of being afraid of losing. I'd like a bigger margin of safety. So the only way to get that is you have to fix a real problem. And I started to find that the properties that had super, super, super problematic ownership issues, you know, maybe they had some bad debt that was attached to them. Maybe there was fighting with the owners. Maybe it was a bunch of different owners that were fighting and spread out and all these different things. And you've got to figure out how to solve that. Maybe it's a commercial building that the tenant is just taking advantage of the owner and the owner doesn't know how to deal with it, doesn't want to deal with it, or just chooses not to. You know, being the person that can figure out those problems or try to solve them is the one that gets the discount up front. And then when you get that discount up front, if you can figure out how to solve it, you know, then that's then that's where I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. So, you know, I, I did some annual deal reviews where I said, which were the deals that worked out the best for me? And I found that my investment was lower in some of the deals that had problems. So 
you know, there were deals that would come to me up front and I would say, let me just give this a shot. And folks would say, I never want to fool with this. And I'm kind of like, well, this is the trash out of somebody's the bottom of their trash can that ended up at the bottom. If I can turn this into something worth something, well, no one wants to do this. So you have no competition. So I started to take more looks at those. Yeah. And that's uh, an interesting, you know, way I see it that way. I know that a lot of people don't, and I actually kind of know what you do. And even some of the things, the, the riddle me this, you know, the way that you structure it, like there's things, cause I've done a lot of title searches on properties. Cause we bought a lot of foreclosed, you know, properties over the years. And you know, I think that the misconception is that like you're taking advantage of someone. And, and I think it's actually the opposite of that is there's oftentimes it's helping people unlock something like they, they, they want to sell a property. And spe- especially San Antonio is a, a, a really interesting, you know, city from that is, you know, grandpappy bought it, uh, you know, 70 years ago you know, had several kids, you know, it, it passed down from generation to generation. Now, you know, Susie has been paying the property taxes on it, doing the thing, living in the house, but, you know, and wants to sell it, but can't because there's so many other claims to ownership on it. That title won't insure it. So nobody can get a mortgage against it. And, what it is, is it's unlocking that is going back and tracking through how to fix that problem. Susie that's been living there for the last 20 years, or maybe her entire life has been living there and paying the property tax and doing the other things that she can now sell something at a higher value versus nothing. And um, so I think that is absolutely key to what, what you're doing. So, I mean, let me give you some examples. Cause yeah, I was just going to exactly that, like uh, an example. And then maybe let's just take one that, you know, where it's been especially helpful. And then if you could take that and then be like, what has been like the craziest wild deal that, you know, you do and get into the nitty gritty. Like, uh, uh, that's, I find super fascinating myself. Well, you mentioned unlocking value and, one that folks just have a big t- trouble, big time solving is locked land, landlocked land. So technically you shouldn't have any landlocked land in Texas, but unfortunately when a person subdivides property without a subdivision plat, which is not necessarily illegal, but it's just frowned upon because it's not the right way to do it. It's not correct, but you can wind up having landlocked land Someone gives it, lets you use an easement, but it's not recorded. Just people don't do things right. They don't know what they're doing. They screwed all up. And that's one of the ones that folks have the biggest time solving. So I'll give you an example of a family that they were referred to us. There's someone I knew out of Houston. And this piece of property was in Conroe. It was about seven and a half acres. I mean, just a few miles from the highway. It was like a really high value area. And the family said they... There were seven owners, and they were all generally in agreement that they wanted to sell it. They really didn't want to keep messing with it. No one had been paying the tax. It was actually scheduled for a tax sale. So we get called by the family through the referral, and they said, look, we've tried to sell this multiple times. It's landlocked. There is no easement. It's going to go to the tax sale. And we all agree to sell it, but we just can't get anybody to buy it without title insurance, and nobody will insure it. So I get to do some looking. I say, look, you got about... Three weeks till the sale. We don't have a lot of time. 
But if you're going to, if you agree to sell it to me for a really good deal, I'll deploy some real resources on this. So they agreed to sell it to me for about 25 cents on the dollar, maybe a little less than that if I had to remember right. But at that point, I said, okay, I'm going to contingently deploy an attorney, a private investigator, and two guys in my, well, one guy in my office and me. And we're all going to dig in for probably 20 hours, maybe 30 hours of heavy research on this and see if we can solve it. But you have to contract with me because I'm not going to take the risk if I don't even have a shot at making a good deal. So we contracted uh, and we get an old title commitment that they had that was worthless. It just had seven people in title, no ingress, egress, and they were going to accept from coverage on that. So one of the guys in my office spends about, ended up thinking it was going to be a couple of days. It took a week. He abstracted every, he first got the legal description of every property that touched this property and this property. And then did title search 100 years back on each one, grantor to grantee. So you wound up with, they're like seven tracks. Each one had 100 years of grantor grantees. So we have this list of like 60 owners. And then we basically did an easement. Oh, we did an entire county record search for each owner in that county's land records. Exhaustive search over and over and over. We spelled their names differently. We flip-flopped them, just added them in initial, took out everything we could. Because my thought was the way this property was segregated, we knew there was a family partition where a mom and dad died and the kids couldn't agree. So they went to court and the judge, it was big enough for the judge to split it up into pieces. We saw a lot of uniform sized tracks. And I thought that's a subdivision or a partition division, like a true partition. So we ended up finding that there was a partition plat is what it was called in the, it was recorded in the land records that it was poorly indexed. It was not indexed to the legal description. It was indexed to one of the prior owners, but names were misspelled, things like that. And we found a partition plat that included an easement grant that basically extended what was a county road that was stopped in real life. The easement continued all the way to this property. So I tell people landlocked land, I bet 75% of the time is truly not landlocked. The problem is the title company for a thousand bucks, if they're getting paid on this transaction or three grand, they're not going to spend 60 hours worth of work to dig. They can't do it. It doesn't work. So that's what we did to find that easement. Once we found the easement, we spent 25 grand to build a road. And then title insurance, clean, clear. Boom. Yeah. And that's, I mean, exactly kind of what I'm talking about, how, how super fascinating that is. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to help people like that in Texas because, and the values are starting to come up and it makes sense now to help them. I mean, cause you know, like I said, you know, 20 years ago, there were some parts, you know, uh, Conroy and, you know, spring and Tomball and, you know, some of those other areas in Houston, uh, until the woodlands were built was nothing. It was, you know, worth nothing. And, you know, same thing, it, it wouldn't have been worth, uh, spending that time to track that down. So um, it's a unique time in the world. And, and I don't think that's exclusive to Texas. Um, the values of everything are going up right now, uh, especially in real estate. It's just, um, how did you get started doing these dirty title investments? I don't think that was the first deal you did was a, a landlocked thing. You mentioned, you know, these attorneys and your title extracts and those other things. Maybe you did. Maybe you started. You just went walked off of a, an oil field and laying pipe that you're just like walked out and be like, now I'm going to do title search. 
take me to how you got started doing that. Well, I'll say it wasn't that methodical, well thought out, but property used to be really low priced in the city that I started in. And I recall seeing the prices start to climb and climb and climb. And I thought, gosh, it's going to get harder for me to be able to do this because prices are going up. But I wound up buying a piece of property without title insurance because it was cheap. I just thought, what the heck? I don't have much at risk. And somebody warned me that I might have a title problem. And I didn't think I did. Long story short, I ended up having one and I had to fix it. You know, I'd spent enough money. I didn't want to walk away, but it wasn't enough to like, you know, ruin my life. So I had to fix the darn thing. And it took me probably a year, maybe a little bit more. And I had to pay a bunch of legal fees to lawyers to just get them to explain things to me because I didn't know what I didn't know. But after I worked through that process, I understood this is solvable. And as I started to see the pricing come up, I still started to see certain types of properties that people were willing to nearly give away because no one could fix the problem. None of them were willing to spend money with attorneys to fix it. None of them could agree on who was going to handle the deal. And it was just a wreck. And folks were still willing to nearly give those away because the problems associated with it required four to $500 an hour work to fix them. And when I realized folks would still basically give those away, I thought, well, here's a way I can get, I can enter a deal for low price. And if I can figure out how to solve it, I brought value of, you know, multiples of five or 10 to it. So I did actively, when the business started to get a little more stable, I did actively um, acknowledge that I was taking these on because they made sense. And I had to, I started to build a, a skill set that could do it. I said, these are good deals. I'll do them. So you have a genealogist or a couple of them in your office. Tell, tell me about that. Why, why you have them? You know, it started out just needing a good researcher because, you know, there are some of these properties where folks live all over the world. You know, we found folks in Peru that didn't really want to be found. We've found people in Canada on their vacation, but they actually lived in New Jersey. It was right before a tax sale. We found uh, Switzerland. I mean, we found people all over the world. But you know, when you when you see a property that the owner isn't alive anymore, it might be simple. Three people living down the street, or there might be forty. We've got done one with sixty people that lived across the United States. So you have to start looking for them and. You know, this is a contingent deal. You know, I'm the last guy to get paid. So I got to have the resources to be able to find folks, decide if it makes sense. If, if they're all being reasonable, we can cut a deal. And the genealogy thing became so much more important for those type of projects. But the neat thing is he's an incredible researcher and is able to do all kinds of other fun stuff that's not necessarily genealogy related to like the land title abstracting, things like that. It's a great skill set that that can cross over a lot of those boundaries. So you discovered, and so let's, and I think maybe this is more to a little bit of that mindset. Yeah. You know, you saw opportunity East side of San Antonio because you'd saw a few other things and, you know, call it the, the fear, the primal urge to, to not screw it up. You're finally making some money. You invested in there. Then you bought a, you know, something with dirty title. You, you had to go fix it. And, you know, you went to a real estate attorney and, and real estate attorneys are, man, uh, real estate and law is uh, a lot of times opinion, you know, same thing like doctors. I think it's not an exact science. And so I'm sure there's a, a myriad of, of people that you've had to work through 
from the legal side of this and now the genealogy. But if you could kind of go to like mindset, like how, how do you, how does, what have you done to evolve that to where now you're doing, you know, commercial deals, you're buying these ranches, you're buying kind of, you know, bigger price, bigger ticket items where it's not a $5,000 lot anymore. Like now it's, it's, it's real money. And so you're like, Hmm, this is real. I should probably put my big boy pants on. Um, you know, what is it? Do you still have that? I'm scared of, you know, losing this. And so now it's that, or what has happened in that journey and what have you needed to do to unlock those next levels? You know, that's a good point. I started to learn that folks that were really successful just had a unique mindset. They may not be smarter than me or harder working than me or other people, but they thought about things differently. And I, and I realized that, uh, I don't know, within a few years, so I actively tried to think differently. And I talked to folks that were doing that I thought were more successful than I was to try to understand what that looked like. And I really started to realize that one of these small deals is really can be the same amount of time as a big deal. The difference is there are more zeros behind it. And you have to obviously figure out how to finance it in a different way. But it really is the same amount of work, just, just more zeros. And I think with some accomplishments comes a little bit of confidence. You know, there was zero confidence at the beginning because I hadn't completed anything. It was kind of just a, a stab in the dark and headed the right direction and hoping that it was going to work. Once things started to work, I started to say, well, I'm having more and more confidence. And when it got to the point where I realized the odds of it not working out were very, very low, or maybe let's say one in a hundred deals went the wrong direction. I made a bad call, made a mistake and it went sour. I can afford to lose one out of a hundred. It doesn't even matter anymore. It's like Walmart has a shrink budget, you know, the same type deal. So, but when you're looking at the commercial deals, one thing that really helps me understand this is you're not really buying real estate the same way a single family houses or a lot is you're buying a business that happens to come attached to land and it's called real estate, but you're really buying a business is what it is. It, it performs, it's got income, it's got expenses you know, things like that. And when I started to look at it like that with a financing component to it, it was, it just looked like any other business I was buying and less like a piece of real estate that you had to find the comps for. It's like, dude, this income covers the debt plus two times. How am I going to fucking lose this? this, You know, or the income barely covers the debt. So if something goes wrong, I'm going to have some trouble. Well, I don't want to do that deal. I don't have enough margin of safety. So when I started to look at it that way, I think were different, way different. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. 
We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. We have families. We got young kids. Um, and I think maybe that was a, a collective, you know, uh, connection point. As a father now, and did I just see that your your kid was roller skating through the house at, at 2 o'clock in the morning? Yeah. Oh, you know, that's a random dad thing that, you know, you just see and you're like, what is going on? You know, but you, what are you trying to do as a father? You have, call it, you know, uh, success in, in this certain area of your life that's leading to it. But then how are you giving that or, or you know, handing this off or teaching your kids or, you know, to, to hopefully avoid maybe some of the mistakes that we've made, what are some of the lessons that you've taken and what are you working on? Well, first I have to give a huge amount of credit to my wife because without her, this household would collapse and we'd all probably be under a bridge. We might have some money in our bank accounts, but we wouldn't figure out how to hold it together. <laughs> so, you know, that everything kind of starts from that foundation, I think. And there are a lot of lessons that my wife and I both have learned over the years. And we have a lot of similar ideology from what she's brought to the household and what I brought. And, Everything we do bleeds from that. So as small as getting ready for dinner, if a kid doesn't do something right, we'll explain to them, you should try it this way because it affects you this way. And this is why that's better forever. And, you know, it, it, all those lessons just compounded every single thing we're doing. So a good example of that is my oldest daughter and son argue about the TV. And one of them always says, okay, the younger one, the son says, all right, you can watch the TV this time and I get to watch it next time. But you know what happens next time? They get into a fight and I say, I'm going to take the remote away. And the younger son says, okay, you can watch it this time and I'll get it next time. So he always gives in and he loses. So I said, all right, guys, I see someone's getting a short end of the stick. Y'all, they know what a contract is. So I said, go get a notebook paper, go get a pen. Put down on that piece of paper what you guys are talking about and both sign it. We're going to put it on the fridge. And the next time the TV comes into dispute, we're going to go back to the agreement and that's going to settle it. So they write contracts about their TV now and they were spelling horrible and it wouldn't hold up, but <laughs> the concept is here. So they're starting to understand it doesn't mean anything. If it's not written on paper, folks quickly forget, you know, these little lessons are starting to permeate that little brain. That's awesome. That's, that's a great advice. I have not gone to that level <laughs> with Something my kids. I will tell you is we were very open about finances. Kids don't know what our bottom line net worth is, but we talk about money on a relative scale. When we spend money to buy something, we, we say this is X amount of days wages for this type of trade, or this is this amount of years work for this profession. This is what you're exchanging. So you guys really have to understand that. We bring it relative. We talk about money all the time. Money wasn't talked about a huge amount in our household. And that's not bad or not good, but by at least focusing on it, you have an understanding of it and it becomes something they're aware of and they can use that later if they want to. It's a tool they got. That's awesome. That's I, I do some, some things like that, that, you know, interesting as a parent, what you're trying to do is, you know, you've seen the movie Inception. 
So I'm trying to incept things into their head, into like plant seeds that I'm going to water over years. And I'm playing the, the long game of this. And, and so, uh, you know, getting my son to start, you know, investing and looking at the abundance that exists in the world. And so now he's building a business that he, uh, he sells stuff online, you know, just, you know, arbitrarily Facebook marketplace, you know, setting up some eBay accounts, some other things like that. And I've been helping him and, you know, brought a mentor in to help him, you know, do those things. Cause I don't sell a lot of stuff online like that. So you, yeah, know, you want to listen to daddy, like you will somebody else. I appreciate that. Yeah. And so then it's just this abundance and then, you know, taking that as that he's investing that into a vending machine business. And so he's going to take that into a smart vending machine business that he can, you know, scale and, and create and investing in the technology and other things. So, you know, putting those seeds that I've been over the years is, is, it's one of those, those challenges. So I wanted to take that, you know, to the component you mentioned about being around other successful people or the way that they think differently. And obviously, and I'm bringing this to, as a parent, I try to put some of those, those, people in my, my kids' lives, what has, or who have been some of those mentors or those successful, or maybe it's a book, or maybe there weren't any, and you just discovered it through your own, you know, trial and error, but has there been people that have done that to help elevate and change that mindset? And if so, if there's, who's the secret, how do you unlock that? Well, I will have to say that I think certain personality traits genetically are just and it's a hereditary thing that's drawn to certain types of behaviors and certain types of patterns and things like that. Cause I see my daughter exhibiting certain patterns. I'm like, wow, that's going to benefit you. Well, although it drives me insane as a parent right now, cause I can't corral that bull. I can see what that's going to do for her because I appreciate it in my life. So some of that's inherent. It's just in your DNA. And I, I believe there's some parts of this that I've just have in my blood for lack of better terms. Um, I'll say from my mom's standpoint, she was very resilient, especially as a female in a male business, particularly when she was in sales and marketing the radio. So there's a lot of resiliency, a lot of headstrongness there, I guess. You know, my dad looked at things from a very analytical uh, way, and I think I picked a good amount of that up from him. Also, a business partner I picked up along the way that I still work with today um, was not a ton older than me, but he was super bright. He he looked at you know hundred million dollar businesses for a large part of his career, and participated with some of them. And his experience was you know the lifetime of ten entrepreneurs or more because he got to see across all of those. And I think he really really helped me become a better business person. You know I felt like I could sell. I felt like I could figure deals out, but. He just helped me become a much better business person. Um, and I, that was huge. And then, of course, just being around people, listening, you're like, damn, that guy's bright and he's got good ideas. Like, that's happened along the way. But there are, you know, three or four people, the ones I mentioned specifically, that just, I feel like, rubbed off a ton. Yeah, that's, uh, has there been any kind of, like, books or you know, maybe it's all in person, you know, as far as those people or anything, you know, because you talk at a higher level and at least I, I pick up on that as far as your, your margin for safety or, you know, those things, it's more financial terms than, than, you know, and maybe that's just communication with other people, but has there been anything that, you know, 
got you, led you to real estate or to mindset or, you know, kind of unlocking these, these next levels? I'll say like a lot of the Grams and the uh, Buffets, you know, their books, I've read those and, you know, they're freaking super high level, super bright guys. And I got to understand a lot of the terminology, I guess, and concepts by reading their stuff. But I read a lot of that stuff early on, so I didn't really know what it meant. And when I got in rooms of guys that were way up there above me, I started to hear them and I started to be part of the conversation and the context clues started to make it real. And then the business partner I was telling you about is, you know, at that level. So I, those are part of daily conversations and whether I picked up from outside or wherever, it becomes ingrained when you work with someone day to day. So that was super helpful. But some of that early reading help. I'll tell you one of my favorite books today still is uh, how to win friends and influence people. The Carnegie book. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, if you're running a landscaping business or a hedge fund or you're an artist. I don't know. If you can sell and if you can connect with people and you can understand them on a, on a really deep internal level, Matthew McConaughey's new book kind of talks about this a little bit. You can really, you can get green lights out of that or you can plant seeds that evolve into green lights. And it's getting what you want out of life is what it boils down to. But you have to be able to sell that. And maybe maybe in your example, if you're coming to San Antonio with somebody who might want to invest in a fund that you've got, and you're not really trying to get $5 million out of him right now, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to sell him on that you're a trustworthy person, that you're going to take care of his money and be a good steward. You're bringing him to a market that's incredible and you want to introduce him to some really solid people to help add to your credibility and knowledge base and uh, attachment to the local community, you're selling. You really are. Even though you're not trying to close them on a sale, like a vacuum cleaner sells out your front door. Like, so to me, that book, I've read it more times than I can count. I love that book. I'll read it for the rest of my life. I'll give it for gifts every year to people because it just, I'll never forget the first job that I got, the first job offer out of college. I read that book beforehand the very first time. My mom gave it to me, by the way, and I still have that copy. I went to Qit, which is a huge industrial construction company, and got interviewed by this guy. And, man, I didn't, I mean, it was my first interview out of college. I didn't know my head from my butt, never been in a real interview. And I remember reading in that book, ask people about themselves, get them talking, look around their office, because Dale Carnegie talked about this in his book. Look around their office, look at pictures of memo, memo, uh, memo memorials, things they have in there. And I started asking this guy about his fishing stuff, his golfing stuff. And that dude liked me. We didn't even talk about work. And they made a job offer to me. And I could have been a shitty worker and stupid, but he liked me and he could feel that there was that connection. That's how I got my first job interview or offer was from that book. I copied it. I love that book. Yeah, that is a... Uh... One of those classics and obviously why it's it's transcended time uh, as far as because of those. Obviously, I think you had to take the action steps. I mean, you could read that and, and conceptualize that in your head. But if you had not noticed those things on the wall, the fishing pictures, those other things and brought that up in a conversation piece, it, it would have been, you know, how do you know that they actually liked you or connected? You know, and also to understand how to relate to some of those. I mean, if you're in genuine and you're, you know, 
G fishing and you don't actually fish at all, you know, I think that maybe uh, people can see through that uh, a lot easier. But I'll give you an example. In that case, it's really thinking things through from a dirty title to the fishing thing or whatever. At that point, I hadn't done a lot of fishing in my life. But this dude was holding a picture of him or holding a massive fish, dude. It was huge. And it looked like he was on some exotic beach. And I saw that and I was like, that's cool. I've never done that or seen that or been there ever. So I asked him, I'm like, dude, where are you? It looks like you're in some crazy place. And he starts telling me about it. I'm like, well, you didn't find that fish in the toilet. Like, dude, that's bananas. How'd you figure this shit out? Because I was truly like, like astonished by it. He had to explain to me how he became a good fisherman and the awesome place he caught it at. And I don't know shit about fishing at the time, but I told him that. And that's why he felt comfortable about it to me because it was honest, transparent, and genuine curiosity. So... Yeah, just 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 being yourself and and telling people, you know, that uh, how has that translated and Dale Carnegie's to buying some of these properties? I mean, you know, because they're not like it's not like, you know, advertised in MLS. They're oftentimes, you know, not, uh, you know, even in the newspaper, maybe a few obscure trustee sale kind of things like that. But how has that taken it from discovering your first job to now transacting and buying some of these properties? So I feel like relationships from, we sometimes we work with uh, oil and gas abstract title companies. We work with a lot of different attorneys, surveyors, environmental report companies, just all these different third-party folks. And the more that I'm able to get them to trust us and want to work with us and have those relationships, the more referrals we get, um, the more they treat us well when we come to them with a project. And then, of course, when you're dealing with the specific folks who, who are in a tough spot, you know, a, I don't know, a commercial building's getting foreclosed on. This dude's been successful his whole life. His wife left and became a drunk. And his triple net tenant ain't paying the taxes and he ain't got the money. And he's too afraid to hire an attorney and go after this ding-dong tenant. I know that he's hurting. And a lot of folks who don't have any heart just call them and go straight to the point. And I call, talk about, find out who this dude is as a human. Talk to him about these problems. And I'm truthfully, I'm very transparent. I say, look, man, I think I can solve these problems, but you got to know if you went and solve this and fixed them on your own, you're going to get top dollar maximum. I'm kind of like a pawn shop, but I'm going to take care of you through the process and I'm going to solve this. And I'm not going to just cut bait when you sign, I really will work through this the right way. They can understand that and they believe it. And it's, they would rather work with me than the 17th dude to cold call them off of a tax delinquent list. You know, I, everybody that's all. I also believe that's translated into building a very good culture in our office. Um, there are 13 people in our office right now. We've recently started to hire more because we were ready and I feel like the culture translates. We found folks that believe in the way we think. Um, so I think it's huge from just the deal to the organization, to the third-party trade partners, even bankers when you sit down. I know they have all these check boxes and metrics and whatever they've got to fill out to approve a loan. But I've had several bankers say, I believe you and your business partner, no matter what all this shit says on paper, if this deal goes bad, you're going to pay us back. I see that in you and I believe it, or you're a great con man. One of the two, I don't think you're the con man. And I feel like that makes a huge difference when the bankers are underwriting their deals. 
how much I know a lot of your early deals, you didn't use debt. And, 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 you know, uh, we've had this conversation because I know debt is a, is a, a nice lever of a tool to pull on to, to make some, some better returns. But I mean, you have to be judicious with the use of, of, of leverage. What does that look like today for you? I mean, cause, uh, are, are you still using debt? You know, the, the market and debt's crazy cheap right now. Interest rates are bananas. You know, are you using debt? And if so, is there kind of a, a you know, percentage that you're trying to stay at or uh, around? Um, and what, what gives you comfort or doesn't give you comfort today? You know, early on, I would use some hard money or private money because that's just the only way that I could do it. And when I got over that hump, it was a very heavy reinvestment. And I really peeled a small amount away from me for the business to live on. So there's a lot of reinvestment. So then I went through a phase where there was zero debt, absolutely none. It was only cash. And then I started to get to the point where I said, you know, the bank trusts me. I got a, I got some, you know, a little bit of going concern, I guess, here. And at that point, I started getting some credit lines with the local banks. And as long as there's a short enough turn, I'd feel good about using a credit line because most of these assets are relatively liquid once I'm done with them. You know, it's more like a widget than it would be like a, a piece of real estate. Banks see real estate as illiquid, but I bring a pretty heavy component of liquidity to it because I get a good deal and I give a good deal. So when I sell it, I'm selling for a relatively fair price. So it sells quick. And the banks could start to see that. So I started to do some, uh, get some credit lines. And that was working. I felt more comfortable with it. Interest rates, like you just said, plummeted. And as the business started to get more stable on all fronts, you've know, got a mortgage note portfolio, got the private equity investments, and then the, you know, the trouble title stuff. And then we got the mortgage or the commercial assets. Things started to stabilize. So I started to feel more comfortable with the debt. So I started to use a little bit more of the permanent debt on some of the bigger stuff like the apartment buildings or the commercial warehouses or office stuff. I just use, you know, fixed term perm debt. And these days the banks are anywhere in the twos or fours on those rates. So, you know, they're wanting you to put down a quarter or so of it. But if I'm buying it for less than it's worth already, and then I'm putting down a quarter to a third or 40% because a, the bank loves it when I do that, so I have no problems with underwriting. B, it makes me feel better because my monthly obligation is lower. So I'm really kind of just, I'm bringing that margin of safety up for myself when I buy right. I'm using more cash than the average person. So just all elements of risk start to go down along the way. And when that happens, plus the interest rates are as low as they are, I say, okay. So at this point, a fair amount of the, I would say, 80% of the commercial deals that I'll do have a debt component to them now. And like you said, that allows you to lever upwards. And as long as it comes with good cash flow or has cash flow in here or it's a short hold on the asset, dude, all problems solve themselves there. So what, I'm curious as far as, you know, your portfolio, I know you have a little bit of multifamily, some commercial, some other things like that. Have you invested in a tax sales? You know, sounds like you're you're maybe carrying some notes back. What is your kind of the mix of your portfolio and kind of percentages? Again, disclaimer, just because, you know, this is what Logan does, or when I discuss about some of these things, it's not investment advice, you know, seek investment attorneys, don't make, uh, 
just the assumption to get since Logan's smart that I should do that as well? Well, I'll say a lot of folks say that you should diversify and sometimes the hedge against uh, risk is being highly specialized. So, I mean, pretty much all my chips, well, with the exception of some that are in private equity deals, you know, 80, 90% of my chips are in the real estate business. The neat thing is I feel like my risk is low because my basis is low, and the debt's low. So the market could shudder by 50% and everything would still remain stable. I probably wouldn't be making very much at that point, but I'm not at a risk of loss of any assets at that point. So I'm really well covered up there. You know, I would have to look and tell you specifically on the balance, but running rough numbers in my head, I bet about 20%, I bet about 20% is the mortgage note portfolio. I bet about 50% is the commercial assets because those are bigger. And one asset can take up a bigger part of the total portfolio. Just, you know, you pick up a 25,000 square foot warehouse or, you know, 50 or 100 unit apartment complex, that's a bigger lake at once. I bet the commercial assets take about 50%. And then the remaining 30% are what I would call like current inventory, you know, just stuff that we bought and we're doing title work or cleaning up a site or something like that to resell it. So maybe a third is what I'd call current assets, uh, inventory maybe. With inflation, do, do you plan on changing any of that? Are you holding more cash? You know, I mean, what, are you doing anything to change your investment strategy? You know, 2021, we're rolling into almost 2022, you know, or maybe it's 2022 when this, this episode actually airs. We've seen inflation at a 30-year high. And maybe even, you know, uh, real world inflation is much more significant than what they, uh, you know, put out there in the media. You know, are you doing anything? What are you seeing? And, you know, put your prediction hat on your crystal ball. What do you see happening over the next few years versus when you are investing in 2012, 13 and 14 was kind of the bottom of the market? You've been through an era of never having a down market. So what is the next three years look like for your predictions? And then are you doing anything differently from your portfolio preparing for that? Well, you're right. I started at the bottom of the market and just basically been riding this wave. So the wave that I've been riding as it grows, just like you have this go around, makes me look, me and anybody else, look 50% smarter than we really are. Because when every asset you have continues to appreciate at double-digit numbers every single year or more, well, even an idiot can look smart here. So I have to give half the credit to that. But I think if 100 people give you their prediction of what's going to happen, maybe three or four out of 100 are right. And those three or four out of 100 are lucky. So what I can tell you is you and I both know that statistically speaking and historically speaking, we're due, we're overdue for a correction. But we're starting to get all this, you know, the easing that the federal government, and the central banks are doing. You've got artificially low interest rates that the government is affecting there. I mean, those are all things that aren't, those are just cheats on the normal economic cycle. So, you know, it's really, really hard, I feel like, to predict that. So what I, what I keep telling myself is, how do I be safe in good times and bad times? 
And you got to remember, folks talk about that margin of profit. They're always shooting for the profit margin. For me, I take that profit margin and I rotate it downwards. That's my margin of safety. So I have that much room to lose equity, lose cash flow, have a market fallout on me before I start losing principal. So that's my safety net is what it is. But if you have a big enough safety net that you never have to exercise, then that's your profit. So I've engineered in my mind based on because of the fear, the margin of safety in every single asset that I've got. So if the market were to take a hefty hit, I mean, literally sales could stop and rents could go away by 50% and mortgage payments could go away by 50% from my borrowers, I'm still going to have enough to keep the lights on, cover my debt and be okay. So I haven't really done anything to hedge against inflation because if I'm able to buy something for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50% less than it's worth, I'm not tripping about 5% or 10% because I picked up 50%. It really goes back to the value investing. And if you get a great deal at the beginning, I'm not smart enough to figure all that crap out. But if I can get a smoking good deal at the beginning, my dumb ass ain't going to lose no money. That's the best way I can say it. <laughs> and it sounds like a lot of those old crazy farmers you meet, you know, that are worth like crazy money is driving a beat up truck and wearing overalls. And you're like, I, I don't get it. He's not that sophisticated. But I think the very core basic principles are used. You don't have to be. Well, it's just it's the, the old adage of uh, real estate. I think a lot of people are, are disillusioned to the get rich quick scheme of it. And if you just use that, those principles of it's pretty tried and true, you can get rich with real estate over time. And, but not overnight. Right. And it's over time. And exactly that is it, it. This is a, you know, let the market go up and down and do those other things and position yourself. So um, I wanted to uh, address one other thing, you know, uh, you know, as a as a fanboy of of Logan and what you've been doing, your Gibbs mansion. And kind of now you've evolved that uh, and growing, you know, your own personal residence that uh, you're doing this super rad, you know, very period mid-century modern, but like a, a vibe on that. Uh, and now you bought an office building and now you're redeveloping some of those. So I'd like you to dive into some of these. These are, are a little bit more of a passion project for you, um, or at least that's the way I see them. What, and, and dive into some of the history of that. You, you bought a foreclosed kind of falling down, you know, tell, tell me the whole story of the Gibbs mansion in government Hill there. So it's interesting. It is a passion project. It became one, but the neat part is the numbers really made sense. So it, I'm being that much more passionate about it, <laughs> but I was renting an office back in 2018 and it was tough for me because I'm in the real estate business. And I hate paying rent to somebody. But I came across a foreclosure. Back then, we were still doing a fair amount of foreclosures. And I came across this deal that was you know, a lot more money than the average house in that particular neighborhood that was right by downtown, right by one of the big developments, the Pearl, just that whole little area. And it was like twice or three times the price of the normal house over there. I thought, what the heck? I'm just looking at a spreadsheet. So I Google it and I see this massive mansion. It's like, I don't know, Gothic Victorian revival with a huge Porsche that wraps around the side almost 6,000 square foot. Like it was impressive, but it definitely looked beat up. And I just thought, my gosh, this is incredible. So I cold called the dude like anybody else. 
and just say, Hey, you want to sell this thing? It looks like it's not being used. And he said, yeah. So I couldn't quite cut a deal with him. He was just being a little hard headed. So it goes to foreclosure and I call the bank the next day and said, I'd like to buy it. Here's what I can pay. And what I could pay was basically what the payoff was or what the bank had in it. So we executed the contract and I closed about a month later. And incredibly enough, the inside was awesome. I mean, it was dated, but it was just structurally and just finish out was awesome. Now the outside was horrible. I spent a I spent 50% of what I paid for the building on the exterior. New wood, new paint, new porch boards, just new structural on the porches. Those big old porches needed help. I had to put a new roof on it. And that was a metal roof with TPO combos. Ugh. So it was a lot, but over the course of about six to eight months, I was working out of one of the offices in there and fixing it. It's just been an incredible place. I've got a tenant upstairs who rents 50% of the building from me. So I got about 3,000 square foot and they got a, somewhere around there. It's been an awesome. It's got such a story. It's so fun to be in and, it, and the location is great. Now, the tricky part is I told you we've been hiring and I'm looking around like this tenant's got, you know, six years is their lease. They're in it a year and a half. They're not going anywhere. I'm out of space on the bottom floor. So I tried to buy two duplexes across the street from me, from the owner and convert those into office, much like ours, just a little complex that he was unreasonable and fine. I said, you know what? I'm going to go look for another office. Just got a hair up my butt that day. I stumbled across one. <laughs> um, and I did some research and the sellers had some bankruptcy issues on another separate business they had. This building had been on the market a long time and it needed a real heavy makeover in terms of uh, mechanicals. That's a big price on that kind of building, as you know. So I made them a, a really low offer, but I needed it that low because I had to do mechanicals, the whole deal. I was going to have to gut about 10,000 uh, 10, square foot or the 15,000 square foot building. So I hit them low, but I justified it and said, I'm trying to get to market. This is market. This is the repairs. This is all I can give you. And I'm not trying to get profit on top of that. I'm just trying to be in this thing for market once it's fixed. And they took the deal. So I'm actually getting ready to uh, sell the mansion. Oh, really? Yeah. I went back and forth between, do I keep it and lease out the bottom? Do I sell it and roll that into this next deal? And I, I have to stay true to the don't fall in love with the stock mantra. So it makes a lot of sense for me to roll that forward into this next deal. So I'm, after about four months, I'm not going to be the owner of that thing anymore. Well, I'll make sure in the show notes that they put links to, I, I know that, you know, the newspaper and a couple of places have put some uh, articles about that and then share some pictures of it. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it was late 1800s, 1884, 1885, something like that. And, you know, absolutely neoclassical, like, man, what a cool. And also the, um, there's a, a Gibbs building downtown that uh, was an office building, the same kind of, um, uh, the, the same gentleman business. I don't know what he did. And maybe those, some of the articles go into some of those details. I'm sure you've do dove into that, but, um, your personal house, you're doing this mid-century modern, like you got like terrazzo floors, you're doing, you know, kind of, uh, was it a, oh man, that's, that's beautiful. You kind of see parts of it, the stone and the wood and all that. Yeah. 
How, how'd you come to that? Why mid-century modern? Or, I mean, you know, how, how did that kind of play out that, that project? You know, I'm, truthfully, I've never liked being inside. When I was a kid, I'd literally go ride my bike for six hours on Saturday and I didn't want to go inside. I hated it. And I started to realize that buildings that had lots of glass made me feel more comfortable because I kind of felt like I was outside. And I, there's a letter I wrote to myself, like at the end of fifth grade or whatever, you know, they put it in this thing, give it to you to graduate high school. And I remember saying I wanted to be an architect as my profession and build houses with glass walls. And so that's something that's been inside me, but I never had, it hasn't materialized anywhere. And when I, we bought this house, you know, back in 2017, it's got the, you know, the glass, the windows that are just, you know, 16, 18, 20 foot wide, you know, huge banks of glass all over the place. And we love that. And it's gotten the modern look, which I like because it's clean and simple. And I, I feel comfortable in that kind of environment, I guess. So we bought it and moved in. We got a great deal on it at the time. And we lived here up until last summer, which we moved out last summer and just gutted it. But the, the challenge was to rebuild it in a way that was appropriate, but still felt like it was new materials, but we didn't lose the character. So, yeah, it was a year-long <laughs> – we were talking about that earlier. I managed the project like an idiot. I shouldn't have, but – So, so, and I think we said that. It, so, it, it's probably taken two or three times as long and cost about two or three times than if you just hired somebody else to do it? Probably right on that, yeah. Yeah. But that's super well, we got a place to live. You, you wanted to be an architect and build uh, houses with glass walls. Yeah. Do you still have that? Um Paper or no? Yeah, I have it in my office. So there's that letter, and there was one other one that I wrote to myself about being a gold trader. And some guy came and gave me a chest full of gold, and I sold it all. Never had to work again a day in my life. And those two letters, it's strange because that seed is in you apparently when you're really young, and you get to see where it winds up when you're old. The only people that get to watch that are your parents, really, because you are not aware of that. But reading those two letters were interesting because. It helped me understand that. Has anybody given you a chest of gold yet? No, but I've got some nuggets along the way. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what you're saying is you need to start buying some like gold mines or some, uh, you know, something else, get those mineral rights cooking. Uh, we expand your, your, your peer view of what you're investing into. Um, so What's an ideal? Somebody, you know, said, wow, I really like, you know, here in Logan, you know, uh, I got a problem like this. I got a property that, you know, I can't get rid of or it's got a problem. Um, you know, what is an ideal thing for you, you know, and then how did they, you know, reach out to, to connect with you? Or if, if, if you're looking for deals, I, I assume that you um, are still a gunslinger and hustling and looking for things that you can do. Um, so what is that perfect deal? And then how can people connect, uh, you know, with you on that? Well, first I'll say that we do a lot of deals with folks. Sometimes it makes sense for us to take the asset and give them money in exchange. Sometimes they'll become a partner with us and we say, we'll figure out how to solve this. And then we'll split the equity up on the back end because if we charge you the fees that it takes to make it work, then it doesn't work for y'all. So we partner with folks um, and we've cut the deal so many different ways. It's incredible. But I just encourage folks to call and talk to me or somebody in my office about the deal. 
there are so many solves that we've learned over the last 10 years that I can literally tell someone on the phone, dude, the title company has your schedule C showing this judgment or lien is attached to that property, but that's this person's homestead in Texas. That judgment or lien can't, can't legally stick to that. It's protected under homestead laws. So send a certain letter to that debtor and ask for, or that creditor and ask for a partial release, dude. It takes you an hour and two hours of attorney's time. This fixes your problem. I mean, I, I give people that information all the time. I tell them I'm not a lawyer, not giving you any advice, but if this reminds, this is what I would do. If you call an attorney and ask them the right attorney, they'll tell you this. So we give folks free advice all the time to just fix their problem. But if it's more complicated than that, I'll tell them, all right, dude, this is probably not something you do on your own. Let's talk about how this looks. So I encourage folks to call us. There's always somebody in our office who will talk. You can Google search my name, Logan Fulmer. You can Google search Asset Resolution Partners. Um, and our office line is there. You can find some information on Facebook sometimes. We put out there. But yeah, that's, I think that's the best way. So what if... Let me go back. I, mean, I didn't answer your question. What does the right deal look like? If it can't close through title insurance or you don't know how to fix it, and you're not getting the right answers and you're stuck, that's when you should call. Yeah, that makes sense as far as your, your if, if it can be solved, the title company part of things probably uh, not the right priced structure. And, and, you know, again, you're to your, you know, adage as far as solving a big enough problem, you know, and getting paid and rewarded for that. Um, what if, you know, somebody wants to partner with you, wants to invest with you. They're like, hey, Logan's super sharp. I love what he's doing. I want to go give him barrels of money. Uh, are you taking on investors? Are you doing funds? What are you doing? That it's, you know, uh, from that or is it all self-funded? And, you know, uh, you know, are you looking for investors? Right now, no. You know, I've had folks all the time, we go to get our teeth clean at the dentist office and they know who we are and they always ask, can we invest with you? And, you know, at this point, I haven't done that. We've been able to, you know, self-grow. And I like that because the responsibility is simply to me and any partners that I have in the deal. And, you know, that's it. I feel like the level of accountability is as high as it could ever be if it's pretty much all yours or your own personal guarantee or whatever. And I know a lot of folks, their goal first is to get as much non-recourse debt, as much borrowed money as they can. But I feel like my personal accountability has kept me accountable to a good deal. Sometimes I think when people use others' money, they manage or they borrow too much, they get sloppy. And that's just been something that you know our office has really been cautious about. Some of the deals we looked at, we looked at a big timber deal last year that was 4,500 acres of timber out in Louisiana. And I knew that if that deal made sense, I could handle it in terms of operationally, but I could not handle it financially. So that was a time where I was looking at taking on some kind of financial partner there. So in the future, if those were to happen, they would be on a case-by-case basis, but they would be much bigger deals. You know, with the standard stuff in our wheelhouse, you know, I've been able to kind of internally manage so far. Well, that's, I think... Exactly. in what you just said, the ability to be patient. And so, you know, uh, that's one of the things that I tell people all the time, you know, as far as everybody's so in a hurry to go do stuff, um, you know, to get into the deal and to do them. And I've had funds where you had to, you had mandates, like you had to deploy capital on certain time periods or, you know, 
or else. And in like you said, it it causes this like we got to go and you would buy sometimes deals that didn't make sense or were fringed. And, you know, a lot of things had to play out, you know, appropriate or hit the, the top end of the spectrum to, to be a good deal. Uh, when you do that internally, you know, you can be patient. If the deal doesn't hit these benchmarks or these parameters, we're not going to do the deal. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. The, the thoughtfulness in which you approach. What you said makes sense though, is as a, you know, I guess, 10 years ago, I could say you and I were young investors. Now I'd say we're middle-aged investors, but still relatively young compared to like some of the old timers that have been doing this for 40 years. We still have this urge to grow and grow as quickly as we can. And that is a constant fight to say, do I just go explosive and borrow every nickel? And, you know, that could work because there are tons of people that it does. But I know tons of developers that have filed bankruptcy three times and they're successful today, but they've been bankrupt three times. They've gone through two divorces. You know, that level of strain is different. So you have to balance. It's a balancing act. And some people can manage it. It doesn't bother them. And some people are successful with that. But I know that when I go to bed every night, no one's coming to not for a mortgage payment. I'm not overextended anywhere. And I don't have to have investor emails popping in when something goes crazy out there. And now I'm terrified sitting behind my computer figuring out how to answer 45 investors. That's not part of my life. And I don't want it to be. So... Fair. And like you said, I, I know lots of people that do it both ways. Um, yeah, folks are great at it. I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> no, not for me. That's all. Well, I wanted to, uh, you know, honor your time. I'm really thankful for getting a chance to, to discuss these things. Um, you know, digging in, researching. I think it's usually pretty creepy to do that on your friends if you're not preparing for a podcast sometimes. But, you know, I think the nature of of our business is that we do that. Like we dig in and like, what do these people own? You know, like, what is this? Because you're, you're looking to make offers sometimes to people and you'd be like, well, let's see their finance. Oh, they owe a million dollars on that property. Hmm. Yeah. Me offering them $250,000 are probably not going to accept this that, um, right. you know, but it, this gives me the opportunity to spend some time to dive in, to hear a little bit more of, of your backstory. And, um, it, I just really appreciate that where places that people can find you besides other than just having a, you know, if they don't have an asset that needs some resolution, um, is there places, are you active on social media or, you know, Reddit or Discord or, you know, Instagram? And then are you sharing some of this stuff for this wisdom that you have accumulated over the years in other places? I do do that on Facebook. I'm not super active on a lot of the other social media platforms just because I learned how to use Facebook and I kept using it. And uh, that's really all I do. Um, we do a fair amount of networking. There's a lot of stuff around town, but I'll do classes every once in a while on a specific topic and we'll get anywhere from 20 to hundred people together and do those that are curative title work, land development, contracts, the way I understand them, things like that. Uh, another thing is, man, we're really open in our office. You know, there are several guys, including me, that if somebody wants to come in and talk with us and meet for an hour, I understand we're not billing them for the time. It takes me away from a project. But I believe that our networks are worth at least half of what our net worth really is because they're so important. So 
I would tell people, call us, come by our office, come have some coffee, man. If I'm busy, someone else is open. If someone else is busy, I'm open. Like, come meet us. And we spend a ton of our time doing that. So they should call our office. Come on. Awesome. Well, Logan, I appreciate your time. Where where can they find you? Just your Facebook, just the Logan uh, Fulmer or yeah. just Googling that and they'll pull up his... Yep. Office phone number is on Google too. If you Google the name, you'll see the office and the phone number's there and Facebook. Yeah. Again, also in the show notes, we'll put some links to that. I know I've seen some of those classes that you've hosted in the past. If you have any active links of those, we'll put those down there so people can find those. I think, you know, that the niche of the understanding, the contract, how to get out, how to do some of these corrective title issues is like super next level real estate investing, what I've found that is so fast, fascinating about Logan is the way that he sees the world and solving these people's problems. It is, is actually unlocking value through solving problems. You know, his, the Gibbs, uh, mansion, as far as something that's falling down, a, a beautiful old, you know, building, going through foreclosure and then reviving it in the passion. And I, I get to see that as a friend. And this is a small little lens of a, a, a view into his life. I hope that's helpful to some of the uh, audience members here. You can connect to Logan and the many other locations, follow him and his journey in real estate investing. And thank you. No doubt. Thanks, Jake. It's always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.